Welcome to our Fixing Healthcare podcast show, Breaking the Rules. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Don Berwick. He's a clinical professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and professor of health policy and management at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's the former head of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid and co-founder of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good morning, Don, and welcome to Fixing Healthcare. Morning, Robbie. Nice to see you. Don, you were a guest five years ago in season one of Fixing Healthcare. At that time, I asked you for a plan to improve medical quality 20%, healthcare access 20%, patient and physician satisfaction 20%, and affordability by 20%. You described the form of capitation in which dollars would be provided to geographic communities on a prepaid basis. You thought that would generate incentives for prevention, better management of chronic diseases, elimination of ineffective treatments, focus on social determinants of health, reduction in racial disparities. I think it's fair to say little progress has been made across our country since then. Why do you think that is? And what can we do differently over the next five years to make progress happen? I think um, the lack of progress has um, at least two roots, in my opinion. I could be wrong. I mean, this is what I think. One is that the incumbents are doing very well right now, and they don't want the system to change, um, and that it applies right across the board. The hospitals that are consolidating and raising uh, prices, uh, pharma companies that are doing extremely well, given the current mode of payment and uh, organization, insurance companies, which are taking their uh, tithe off the total total healthcare bill. Um, I mean, everybody's doing pretty well, actually, even though they complain about deficits in the wake of COVID. So we don't have a political consensus to change the system fundamentally. Um, so that's that's the biggest thing. And, and, the, and the political uh, heft, the power of these incumbent forces is, is, is politically overwhelming right now. The second, and I've changed my mind a little bit about this, is I'm I'm less and I'm I'm less and less confident that markets can solve our problem. We're a country whose um, uh, mythic structure relates to how markets solve problems, and I'm sure that's true for some products and services. But I don't. I actually have lost faith in markets as a way to improve healthcare. But but as a as a matter of public discourse, we have not. Recent book by Naomi Oreskes. I find extremely interesting as she un, uh, unpacks why we are so committed to market theory when it, the evidence is it isn't really getting the job done. Let's come back to markets in one second, but let's first look at the alternative. From my viewpoint, Congress is logjammed, overly partisan. Can that change? Can anything of significance get through? What can we do to make progress at the governmental level if we're not going to do it at the private level? 
Um, it depends, I think, unfortunately, on on politics. Um, the optimism I feel has to do with what a better system could look like. I, I believe that if we had a globally funded healthcare uh, with uh, the, the public as as the payer, uh, performance would be a lot better. We would save a lot of money. Patients would be better off. A lot of the tariffs that are in the the, the ways the tolls that are paid would go away. And if you think about who stands to gain, it's practically everybody. As long as we have employer-sponsored insurance, employers would gain, workers would gain because this money is coming right out of their pocketbooks, the waste that we have. Patients would gain. They, they would Less of their money would be shunted off to non-value-added activities. Um, I think it would be a better place to work as a physician or nurse. Um, I, in other words, what I'm saying is there is an enormous majority of Americans who would benefit from a globally funded integrated care environment, uh, and I think a, a government insurance system. So, it, I mean, that's latent, that's a latent power. If it were possible to pull together that uh, those many uh, self interests, you'd have a majority. Uh, we've been unable to do that partly because the in, in, incumbent uh, systems control a lot of the messaging, but it's always there. It's always accessible. Given the right leader in the right moment, something could could happen. That's what happened in the United States in the wake of the loss of President Kennedy when Lyndon Johnson, with enormous skill, um, brought us Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, so I, you know, I, I think it's possible. The other thing, uh, Robbie, that, that I'm impressed is with is what's going on in other countries. There is a I think a wholesale move globally right now, many, many nations are moving toward what are basically integrated care systems, which is what we're talking about that's going on now in England. They're having a lot of trouble right now in the National Health Service, but there's a basic restructuring going on with integrated care systems that I have a lot of hope for. I'm working personally a lot with the government in Singapore, which is trying to redesign their system of care to move it away from a hospital-centric system to one organized around population health. So I see this kind of motion in many countries around the world. Here in the U.S., we have clothed this effort under the rubric of value-based care, which I think has not, it hasn't worked out. Uh, we're, we've lost the, the thread of what really has to happen in, in, in delivery, and so we're relying on payment systems which do not hold the answer. Yeah, and it's another topic we definitely have to come back to uh, a little later, so we sort of flow through the conversation. But you know, you talk about ma macro and MIPS and other these small eight percent, ten percent incentives for some type of metric that sits in place. I mean, that's not really a value based system. So we can talk about a label however we want, but in order to have a true value based system, I at least believe it's going to have to be capitated at the delivery system level, not the insurance level. But before we go there, I want to return back to this theme we were talking about, about the private versus the public. And what I see is I do see a major movement, and the movement is being made by the retail giants right now, the Amazons, CVS, Walmart, watching them invest tens of billions of dollars in acquiring primary care. Uh, if they don't have a pharmacy, getting a pharmacy, having an insurance piece, I can well see them creating a system with access seven days a week at both the retail clinics, home care, a tremendous amount of movement happening. I haven't seen anywhere near the end point yet because we're talking about a complete war on the incumbents, but I can see it happening and evolving actually relatively quickly. If you think that the first type 
set of acquisitions didn't happen until maybe six or eight months ago and how much has changed since then. The You can argue that they, these companies are profit-driven and that they are self-serving and a lot of other pieces, but I get a lot of stuff from Amazon. It's reasonably well-priced. It's delivered on time. I have a broad choice. The quality is as good as they promise. Uh, I have a lot more control than I ever had before. Why don't you see these retail giants being able, not for the right motivation, but being able to accomplish a positive outcome? They may. Um, I think they haven't to date, and there have been some false starts. So uh, we still have a track record that needs to be established. But uh, this industry needs um, disruptive innovation, and these could be disruptive innovators. But it all depends on the delivery model. If if the uh, plan for an Amazon uh, or uh, you know Walmart healthcare is simply building on the current fee for service chassis, trying to have a top line driven business model, uh, having volume be the answer to their bottom line, we're just moving the the chips of the same game to a, to a different table. And it's not real change. Um, if they are truly inventive in the way they deliver care and, and uh, in, in fact, including exploiting much more of the uh, uh, virtual care and who knows, maybe artificial intelligence as, as they continue to develop those modalities. Yeah, we could have a disruptive innovation, uh, but we have to free ourselves from the fee-for-service chassis. I just don't think it's going to work. It, it, it's the wrong way to pay. Plus, a lot of what we need in building a healthier, um, healthier nation uh, involves, as as you well know, Robbie, investments uh, outside healthcare that are coordinated with the delivery of care. Investments in social supports, housing, uh, well-being of uh, young children, uh, food security, uh, criminal justice reform, uh, recreational opportunities. Uh, th there's a bigger picture here of how to help a population be healthy, and I. I don't know if these new entrants have any interest in or ability to do that. I mean, I'm watching. I'm watching them with great interest. The other theme, in addition to the these uh, tech giants, though, that is uh, much more of concern to me right now, and that is the increasing incursion of uh, private equity and venture capital and kind of ownership of practice, uh, where by in all likelihood, these entrants who are paying enormous premiums for the purchase of physician practices, for example, uh, are all looking for their exit plan. They're, you know, they're buying so they can have an IPO or some exit in four or five years. They're not long-sighted. And they are really uh, taking a, they're, they're, they're buying a big share of healthcare right now. And that's a very worrisome trend. I agree. And I, I think what you, I think what you're seeing is the uh, last dying breaths of the FIFA service world. And the private equity is sort of the end of that line for the, exactly the reason you're just saying, the, the multiples, 15x. It's just not sustainable unless you can get monopolistic control and be able to drive up your prices dramatically. But let's go back to the retail clinics for a second. And here you and I may disagree a little bit uh, because what I see them doing is investing heavily in Medicare Advantage. And I know you've been a critic of that particular program. I don't know if that's because the payment has been to the insurance companies and not directly to the care providers, but I see them doing that. I see them creating uh, a focus on the home. I see them, I don't see them contracting with every hospital and every doctor. I personally believe we could probably survive with about 30% fewer hospital beds and 30% fewer specialists and get the same care if we had an organized system that worked well. This is what these companies 
do well. Again, we can debate how they treat their workers and a lot of other pieces about it. I'm not defending everything about it. But it's why I have some optimism that their approach is not just going to be fee-for-service. It's going to start with capitation and the Medicare Advantage, and it'll go down to the self-funded businesses, and then it'll go down to a broader piece. And I can see the possibility over a five to 10-year time period, they're replacing most of what exists today with the parts of the system that are underperforming, particularly at the inpatient area, disappearing. I think a vestige of the past, as you pointed out. And I have even a little optimism that when it's in their advantage, they're only going to do it because it's in their economic advantage. But capitation creates that incentive, at least maybe around food, uh, probably around being able to assure that everyone who is enrolled can get the access that they need to preserve their health because it's pretty expensive when they have a heart attack or a stroke or some other type of problem. So I, I can see this happening, but it's going to happen at least through Medicare Advantage. I wonder for, for your thoughts about this program, because I say I know you've written extensively about the uh, challenges that the funding has created. Well, with respect to the retail suppliers, uh, you're raising some really interesting questions, and we'll watch whether they have the sophistication to actually do what you're talking about or if, or if they're just going to turn the gerbil cage and have a business model that's just dependent on volume. We, I don't know yet. We'll see. Uh, Medicare Advantage, my critique of it is um, serious. Uh, the problem with Medicare Advantage is not the original idea. The original idea was to have Medicare beneficiaries be able to benefit from truly integrated care systems. Uh, what happened was with the intermediation of insurance companies, they're the, they're the people the government pays to take care of populations. Those insurance companies have learned how to play an enormous number of games around pricing, uh, severity coding of the population, uh, kind of gaming the additional benefits that they can offer their, their populations uh, uh, in a way that I think does not generally benefit the people and costs a ton of money. The transaction costs, the the non-value-added costs of Medicare Advantage now, according to my colleague Rick Kronick, uh, will total about uh, $600 billion in the next eight years. Uh, it's a tremendous kind of toll or payoff to the insurance insurers who are not delivering anywhere near the improved care that would warrant anywhere near that amount of money. So the Medicare Advantage game as it's currently played is really hurting us uh, financially. Is there a pony in there somewhere? Possibly. If there are entrants in Medicare Advantage or in the market as a whole that actually are willing to take care of populations, to reduce costs systematically by improving care and reducing waste, I'm all for it. But that's not how these plans have been behaving so far. Uh, so we'll see. If you think that Amazon can build on the Medicare Advantage chassis somehow to give better care, uh, bring it on. I'd love to see that, but I doubt it will happen. Don, as a small business owner who will soon be at the point where I need to look at providing health insurance to my employees, I'm terrified of that expense and how it will impact my business. Do you feel the cost of employers providing health insurance to employees prevents many potential entrepreneurs from either starting a business or growing the business to its full potential? Um, in a way, this is impacting the American dream, in a sense, by preventing others out there who could potentially reach their goals as a small business owner. Is the cost of providing these health insurance to employees having the same kind of impact on killing small businesses that Amazon or Walmart is having on the retail stores and malls across America? 
So how are small business owners expected to attract the best talent when they cannot compete with large corporations when it comes to health benefits to potential employees? I guess, what advice do you have for small business owners or potential entrepreneurs who have these concerns? You're absolutely right, uh, Jeremy. My early comments uh, focused on the uh, out-of-pocket costs uh, one way or another for patients and families. As as I said, healthcare is the largest uh, healthcare debt affects, you know, over one out of three Americans, about 50% of Americans have some medical debt. That's the individual level, but exactly the same can be said of business, uh, especially small businesses. And you're absolutely right. This is the, the current trajectory of American healthcare is toxic to the viability of small businesses. Uh, my answer to the small businesses is to the as same as to patients, which is get together politically, speak up and say, this has got to change. You're tolerating your, your, your uh, bystanders in a system which is way out of control. So small businesses ought to be supporting healthcare reforms that bring costs under control and improve quality. The biggest one for me would be to have a national health insurance system. I think that uh, you would be very well served by having the insurer in the United States be the government and the payments be direct to providers and stop paying the toll of the intermediation of financial interest. That's just just one. Um, I do hope, or you know, you you could make the case that the whole foundational idea of employer-based insurance, which was has been sold to the public as kind of necessary and good, isn't really the best way to do it. That uh, countries that have um, uh, insurance systems that do not go through the employers, but are either supplied by the government or through social insurance systems, uh, have performed much better. And I think that's true too. So we need big changes. And I'd say to the small business owners, get together and be the political force that we need you to be. I concur with you about what's happening to a large part of that Medicare Advantage marketplace today. I try to get back to what's the fundamental problem leading to why the system remains dysfunctional. And what I see is that it's so hard to bring doctors and hospitals together I see a problem in the transition because if you empty out half of a hospital because you could do it better at home or in an outpatient facility or in some other type of way or just simply preventing some of the major problems in advance through better preventive care and chronic disease management, the hospital goes bankrupt before you get to the end of the line. It may look great, but you can't get there. And so I don't see a whole lot of movement inside the industry. And so why I'm excited about the retail giants is they have the money to be able to bridge the gap. Now, whether they'll do it or not, you're absolutely right. None of us know. They haven't done it yet. It's still very early in the process. And Medicare Advantage, you say, will fill in the gap in the transition. But when they try to move into the self-funded businesses, that's when we're going to see um, a need for cash to be able to survive during the transition to what I think will be a good place for both uh, the providers of care, the recipients of care, and the payers uh, for that uh, particular care. But along that line, let me ask you, uh, this eighth season is focused on healthcare leadership. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of leadership moving in the direction you're talking about. People like yourself obviously are, and the IHI that you lead and have been a founder of uh, continues to do so, but I'm not seeing it more broadly. Uh, what's missing in healthcare leadership from inside the healthcare industry? Not sure. It's a tough question. Uh, I th it, it, what do leaders get rewarded for producing nowadays? Uh, that is executives. Uh, they get rewarded for top line achievement, keeping the hospital full, keeping the revenue flowing, uh, doing more and more and more. And that's not the answer we need. 
I, I partly I trace it back to boards of trustees. I think our boards of trustees and too much American healthcare are are to put it kindly asleep at the switch. This is reflected in inattention to the changes that we're talking about as strategy. There was a paper uh, recently published by two Harvard medical students of mine who looked at the board membership of 15 large academic medical centers and found that 14.7%, 14.7% of the members of those boards had ever had anything in their careers to do with the delivery of care to patients. They were um, real estate moguls, uh, venture capitalists, uh, people from high finance and large industry, but they they really don't know healthcare, and I think that is reflected in the way that a lot of boards are are acting. Uh, I think it would really help if the 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 makeup, the constitution of boards of trustees, were changed in this country in healthcare, so they included more people who are actually are familiar with patient care and more patients, and whether the whether the constitution changed or not, if they began to realize their job is to deliver the triple aim, better care for individuals, better health for populations and lower per capita costs, not to build gigantic, uh, you know, highly profitable institutions as if that were success. Success is health in the public, not, not the, not the size of your hospital. The incentive structures are, 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 are just wrong. And that, that goes right back to the boardroom. Let me dive a level deeper. You know, through the Institute for Healthcare Improvement that you've that you've helped lead, found, you've trained thousands of clinicians, and everyone I've spoken to who's attended found the program superb, highly educational. Many of them have taken back the ideas, they've implemented their improvements. I'll say in narrow areas, but there are few that have really been able to transform the practice of medicine, even in their institutions. Where do we go from here? What what's this next step? It just feels like we're like we're at the edge of a of a canyon. We can see across the chasm the other side. There's just not a bridge that we know to get there. What do you see? How how do we build it? How do we move forward, Don? You're you're a world leader in this arena. What do you think? How, how can we accomplish this? I wish I knew, Robbie. Um, I think that your first comment about the what the um, really the beauty of what IHI has been able to accomplish in, in my view, not I've long since left the CEO role there, but my successors have continued to thrive. And it, it, because they tap the soul of the workforce, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, many managers, uh, pharmacists, uh, clinicians of all sorts, they really want to do the right thing and offered an opportunity to participate in the improvement of work and the, uh, improvement of the well-being of, of populations, they absolutely love it. They will they will rise to it. So there is this reservoir of goodwill and good intent among clinicians that I am, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm naive, but then I'm naive. I, 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 I find it romantic and promising. So it, it it's there. But to release that energy, something big has to change. And as I've aged, I think I've I've more and more come to feel that something um, revolutionary has to happen here. There has to be a discontinuity. Whether that can come from some form of political mobilization, I don't know, but a lot of people are getting hurt by a system that isn't doing well right now, and they um, they need to be mobilized. There are 110 million Americans in medical debt right now, 110 million. There's no other country that can come close to making a statement like that. Largest cause of bankruptcy in the nation is medical debt. 
Uh, that's because our system's out of control and greedy. And sooner or later, shouldn't that convert into some demand that this change? Because it doesn't have to be that way. You and I both know that there are much higher performing healthcare systems around the world at half our cost. So no one can say it can't be done. I've recently written about greed in healthcare, and I don't think it's anything close to the whole answer. We need a restructuring such as you've written and talked about, Robbie. Uh, but there is also this underlying um, acquisitiveness, this, this um, it's greed uh, in, in the multi, multi-million dollar salaries of, of executives in healthcare and pharma and, 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 and uh, health insurance. The, the, the CEO of the largest American health insurance company gets paid well north of $20 million a year in, in, a, in an industry in which people are just yelling now about how little money is available. Um, we have uh, profiteering going on in Medicare Advantage and elsewhere, hospitals consolidating and raising prices um, uh, through monopoly behaviors, uh, pharma pricing that's crazy. And this is lining the pockets of investors and uh, 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 venture funds and uh, uh, private equity and individuals and it's, I think it's wrong. I, I know that's morally stiff-necked, and I apologize for that, but it is wrong. Uh, healthcare is a human right, and our system should be configured to make sure everyone can get care that meets all of their needs uh, and, and, and a system that invests in health and well-being and, and doesn't continue to confiscate money that it doesn't spend well. And, and how, do you, how do you counter that kind of... Uh, that kind of juggernaut, that that the the, the massive effect um, in a country in which uh, political lobbying buys votes, that all points me towards something rather more like mobilization, or I guess I'll use the term revolution. I don't mean violent revolution, but I mean the, the finally people standing up and saying, "No, you can't behave this way. It's got to stop." And the vehicle, I think, is what you write about, Robbie. Uh, uh, so eloquently, which is integrated care, direct payment to clinic, clinicians without the intermediation of financial vehicle of financial organizations, and uh, with accountability, and uh, rethinking the proper use of funds to help keep people healthy. The best hospital is an empty hospital, and until we have financing system that that understands that and goes in that direction. Uh, we're going to continue to pay a toll. As you know, I teach both at the Stanford Medical School and the Stanford Business School, and maybe the business school is the one that's leaning a little heavier on me today. But I describe exactly what you talk about as the conglomerate of monopolies. And I think the ideology of that is very simple. It works. It generates profit. And that's what motivates the majority of companies. And these companies that we're talking about, they may call themselves not-for-profit, but very few of them behave in a way that differentiates from the for-profit. So the motivation becomes the same, even if the economic and tax forms are going to be somewhat different. Maybe where you and I, I'll say, I don't want to say part ways, because I think we're marching down the same path, but maybe get on slightly adjacent ones, is after five years of talking about what should happen, must happen, the right thing to do, I've decided that the more important question is, how, how is it going to happen? Uh, because I haven't observed a whole lot of change and improvement happening. You see, again, burnout to me is an area of major interest. Everyone knows that it exists. Everyone knows it's a big problem. And 
Five years later, nothing is very different. And that tells me the next five years is unlikely to be so. If people are going to be mobilized and demand change and vote differently, I guess it could happen. I'm more pessimistic about the government maybe than you are. It's a little bit of why I go back to the to the uh, retail giants, because I think it's going to take someone who both is big enough and sees it in their interest to make that change happen. Whether they will or not, we'll have to see. But that's sort of where I am today. And I have the same frustration you have about the lack of change. I'm just... Uh, Less confidence can come from inside the industry. You know, you read Clay Christensen, every, I'll use the word disruptive change, use the word revolution, has come by some outside force seeing it in their interest to do the things to make the industry change. You know, it wasn't that Kodak didn't know that filmless camera would work. They just made a lot more money off of film. You could go step down the entire piece, the steel industry, the auto industry, the computer industry, uh, making all of that happen. But I want to go back to the point you made earlier about generative AI. This is an area to me that I think has massive potential. I think it can empower the patient. I think it actually can take a lot of the work off of the doctor. I think it can uh, raise quality. I think it can lower cost, raise quality by guaranteeing that people get the preventive care they need, get the information they need. Um, lower costs by actually reducing disease and the com complications of chronic disease. Medical education is going to have to change to prepare future doctors. As you know, a first-year medical student today will practice 10 years from now. And if generative AI is improving at the rate that we think that it is, it's going to be 30 to 1,000 times more powerful by the time they go into practice. How do you see redesigning medical school curriculum? Wow, Robbie. Well, let me go back to the point you made before about what we agree and disagree about. We both agree with, I guess, the Christensen view, the the, the will to change the the level we, we we need will not come from inside the industry. It's just, it's too, it's too happy where it is, despite all the distress. So we agree that what we may disagree about is where that external change force may come from. And hopefully you're right. Maybe these new entrants, uh, these retail giants will be able to be disruptive. Uh, I, I'm right now thinking maybe we need more political disruption, which is uh, an angry populace saying enough of this. Let's, I, you know, it's my money, and I want, I want what I need. With respect to generative AI, well, um, I'm no expert. I've seen demonstrations and heard lectures. Uh, it is thrilling and terrifying. I think the pace at which these uh, technologies are going to uh, improve is uh, breathtaking. And it's going to be month by month, let alone year by year. And I agree with you that we haven't even begun to see the enormous power of what this can accomplish. I am concerned about some of the uh, writing and, and speaking. I've heard about the downside of it, uh, how uh, you know, where, where the human is going to uh, add value and how to keep these technologies under some form of uh, control. They don't have ethics. The computer doesn't have ethics. We do. For medical students, I mean, I think they'll be ahead of us. I think the incoming classes uh, are already awfully tech smart, and I'm not sure that uh, I think the job of medical school is, is going to be to keep up with the students, not not to lead them. But then there is the larger question of what is the nature of professionalism, the obligations of professionals in this new uh, uh, technologic world. Uh, we better hold on to some of what we really value about um why we do the work we do, uh, which is to 
improve the well-being of human beings, to to relieve human suffering. And and I I, I do see still see the physician of the future and the nurse of the future as guardians of mission. Um, perhaps these new technologies will allow us to free the time of clinicians to do the the, the crucial uh, pastoral work, the, the the holding of the hand and the touching the shoulder that you know is in the heart of uh, of the best physician, and make our make our kind of free our time to do the the, the healing that only a real human being can do. Uh, I, I believe that's possible if we if we play it right. And yeah, that'll be a, a different medical curriculum, won't it? as we build that that muscle for uh, for the clinicians the the other thing that i think is in the future is a much stronger sense of teamwork and interdependency in the training of clinicians we've really trained uh, clinician heroes at least in you know the more remote past and we now need clinician team players uh, and I think that remains a, a challenge and a really important uh, aspect of medical training. In the AI world, I think that's probably, uh, in some ways, even more important. We have to stay coordinated with each other. Again, let me dive down a little bit deeper into this. Uh, several years ago, I joined you in Sweden to watch doctors and nurses achieve amazing and great outcomes through evidence-based standardized care. You taught me a lot when we were there about the importance, the value, the superior clinical outcomes uh, it's been well-documented in uh, multiple different places about how much better it can be at such lower cost. I think generative AI offers the same potential to our nation, but I'm predicting that it's likely to be resisted by healthcare professionals who will see uh, an evidence-based approach as being, quotes, cookbook medicine. Uh, how can the change happen when it's in the interest of patients, and how will it occur most rapidly? By staying in touch with the interests of patients. I think that um, we, we need to be disciplined about watching the well-being of the patients that we're treating. And if generative AI helps uh, restore health, preserve health, relieve pain uh, compared to the old ways, well, we have to call ourselves to mission. And I, I, I think that's quite possible. This will all depend on what is achieved. Uh, be safer, better care for individuals, better outcomes. If we have the data, I, I think I think that'll be a, an important answer to your to your question. You know, I, I always go back to the work of Larry Weed. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it saddens me that I, I suspect for most medical students and maybe even faculty today, his name is unfamiliar, but, you know, Weed back in the last century, you know, really saw through the myth of the physician mind as the key to excellence. He sort of proved that the tasks we have to perform are beyond the capacity of the unsupported human mind. Uh, and he, we himself was experimenting with, I guess we wouldn't call it AI today, but it, it sort of automated ways to recognize patterns that were far more powerful than the individual physician just thinking really hard and stroking his, his or her chin. Um, you know, I, he, he, he was saying, why don't we use the tools best suited to getting to the help the patient needs? And um, I think that uh, maybe time to stop relying on frail memory and uh, individual storage and retrieval of of scientific knowledge as the as the key here. There are better ways to do this. Um, I, I um, he uh, Larry Weed died a couple of years ago, but he was quite a giant and uh, uh, unfortunately not well remembered. So. 
you discussed how many Americans are in medical debt. Uh, one of the sad facts is that many of these people actually have health insurance and are paying for it. Uh, you know, when somebody has a $7,000 or whatever high deductible health plan, they're essentially uninsured. Uh, most Americans don't have that kind of money just sitting around in the bank for a procedure or hospital stay, especially as we see inflation doing what it's doing. Um, this is preventing many Americans from being seen for health issues they're worried about early on because they're concerned about being able to afford it. They then often don't address these issues and or these issues until it's so bad they absolutely have to be seen for it and it's much more serious. So how would lowering healthcare costs, deductibles, and significantly reducing the number of Americans who could potentially go into medical debt, improve outcomes, shift the focus to preventative care, and overall impact the average lifespan of Americans. Your, your question's exactly right. A recent research by Zach Cooper at Yale is showing that the relationship between high medical care costs and increased death rates is, uh, is provable. Uh, and so if you medical debt is not just bad for your wallet, it's bad for your health. And we have much, much more medical debt in this country than any other country, uh, in the world. Um, as uh, the years have passed, as Robbie will uh, testify, the uh, quality of the insurance has gone down, much uh, steadily rising out-of-pocket costs, much more, much higher deductibles and co-payments, especially for people of lower income, because they can buy insurance at lower premiums then, and then later on find themselves holding the bag for payments out-of-pocket that they cannot afford. The average American has very low uh, savings level, and it can be eradicated with a single illness. Even if you're insured, given the defects in insurance coverage, uh, the way out of this, I say again, is a national health insurance system. Um, you know, I have been criticized for for mentioning the the United Kingdom's uh, insurance system, the National Health Service there. Um, but if you look at it, it is interestingly constructed, uh, a tax supported system, uh, insurance available to absolutely everyone and free service at the point of care. No one pay, the co-pays and deductibles are essentially, they're nil. Uh, so people can get the care they need uh, from general taxation support, which is inherently progressive. That is rich people pay more and then um, don't pay anything at the point of care. And that is working um, a lot better than our system. Recently, the National Health Service in England has ran, run into troubles due to some policy uh problems in the previous administrations, but I think they're going to they're going to be well out of it uh, long before we are. One of the things that strikes me is the difference between the advice we give and the ability to see what actually happens in practice. By that I mean is the following. Uh, when offices close, which they're closed you know, 16 out of 24 hours or uh, maybe uh, 14 out of uh, 24 hours and on weekends, uh, the recording machine says to go to the local ER. And that sounds like very safe advice. The problem is that that's not what people either actually do. As you pointed out, it's actually one of the leading causes of uh, financial difficulties and bankruptcy. Uh, the ER is backed up. It's there to take care of people who are very, very sick, not the people who are there simply because the offices are closed. And But we don't quite see that as problematic and we introduce a new technology, and I don't mean the current generative AI. It's a, it's a toy. It's 2% of what it's going to be. But we don't look forward to what it's going to be like in three or four or five generations when it's uh, 30 times more powerful than today. And the potentiality to train it to be able to actually give that advice. 
Uh, is it 100% perfect? No. But what is what exists today? Far from 100% perfect. And yet I, what I keep seeing is that every time we have a solution that when you step back is better, but if you assume that sending the patient to the ER is the safest thing to do, you're never going to accomplish it. I just keep worrying that we're going to get all these cross currents in medicine and we actually will deprive people of having their best chance of avoiding a major problem and knowing exactly when they should get care and when they don't have to come in to receive any kind of evaluation because with a 99.7% probability of success, they've gotten it right. That sounds like less than 100, but in reality, the 100% advice isn't listened to by people because they know it's just standard information and we probably get 50 or 60 instead of 99.7. Somehow this has got to change and hopefully, I'm hoping you're right, the next generation of doctors will insist upon it. But I do worry that the culture of medicine is so strong. In fact, the culture of almost everything, that everything, anytime you look at evidence-based outcomes, people see it as being average and they see themselves as being better than average. And so it looks like it's a decline. And every piece of data says that, as we saw in Sweden, that the outcomes are significantly better Again, I think some kind of change in leadership, some kind of change in education is needed. And I see us being decades, if not centuries, still in the past. Yeah, I'm a little more optimistic than that, Robbie, because of the young people I deal with. As I'm sure you do. They're, they're ready for change. I think they understand that this isn't working the way we set it up. It isn't working on behalf of patients. So if we're smart enough to get the data and to uh, – systematically follow the results of these innovations, I think that may carry a lot of have carry a lot of weight. Um, but um, we, we will see. I hope so. I know that people who come to IHIR. I just hope that the, everyone else is equally committed. They just have had the, had the chance to learn from the expert colleagues that you helped to train. Let's look at COVID-19 as a leadership challenge. I think we can all agree that it's horrific in terms of lives lost, damage inflicted. What do you think our nation got right? And what must we do differently the next time we're faced with a lethal pandemic? What our nation got right? Um, well, our nation got it wrong. Um, and that's because of a number of things. We weren't prepared for a pandemic threat. We thought we were. We were scored very high on WHO ratings of preparedness. But it turns out what you need to be prepared with in terms of cooperation and proper stores of uh, needed equipment and um, and a culture that can accept uh, public health interventions, uh, we we were not ready. So hopefully we'll learn about readiness um, and and make much more systematic plans. This will not be the last pandemic, and there are other 21st century threats that we're going to face. I I, I, th I think we'll learn. We also have the advantage that there were countries around the world that performed you know, immensely better than we did countries like Vietnam and Bhutan and, you know, just, uh, you know, quite unexpectedly got this, this beast under control a lot better than we did. Um, so there's international lessons uh, to learn. But, you know, I have a rather uh, weird view of the, um, of the pandemic and, and our response and others, which is if we think deeply, we did learn how to behave. For example, as you said, you know, doctors traditionally are kind of hooked on some form of autonomy, which is misinterpreted as I'll do it my way, no matter what the evidence says. And yet that's not what happened under COVID. We had, I think, physicians and nurses all over the country hungry for guidance about what the protocols and standards 
should be. We had the amazing support of uh, Johns Hopkins and UCSF and other centers that poured out medical knowledge that people were avid to pick up. We had a journal architecture that completely changed. The turnaround times in our mainstream journals went to days or weeks instead of months or years for papers. They made the resources free and they were lapped up by the professional community. We had levels of cooperation that were extraordinary as people really worked hard together as teams to meet the uh, overwhelming uh, needs of the sicker uh, uh, patients. Uh, we had international curiosity within within days of uh, COVID arriving in Seattle. I know there were Seattle intensive care doctors on, on the phone and internet to the intensive care doctors in Wuhan, China, asking them to, to tell them everything they had learned in managing these difficult patients. We began to think globally. Uh, we had more awareness of stress on the workforce and innovative uh, approaches in organizations to offer supports to the workforce under stress. Uh, I could go on, but but we, we had a lot of interesting, I'll call it success in COVID, despite the tragic toll in, in, in human lives. Um, and I've um, recently been thinking of it as the difference between a fast emergency and a slow emergency. In a fast emergency like COVID, we really did mobilize when you look at it. The the, the amount of uh, change and coming together and innovation was breathtaking. Not enough, but breathtaking nonetheless. That's a fast emergency. The slow emergency is the inadequacy of our healthcare system, the inequities in healthcare outcomes, failure to, to deal properly with chronic illness, uh, no human, no national plan for dealing with frail elders. Um, and, and these are very, very costly defects. But for some reason, we're unable to mobilize the same levels of teamwork and curiosity and commitment to science there that we did in COVID. So my challenge to this country and to other countries is, can we learn from COVID? Can we say, oh my goodness, look what we can do when we decide to do it and take that and apply it to the deficiencies in our current healthcare system? Uh, it, it it could be a very informative experience for us about how to do better. My sense is that when you use the word fast, you really mean imminent. And I think that was the case. And I can remember the panic that people had. You never could get them to socially distance prior to that event. It comes, people are very afraid. Uh, so tremendous amount of social distancing. And six months before either the nation or the WHO said the pandemic is over, people decided that it was. And, it ended. Uh, so I, I think the question is going to be when it comes to something that takes a long time, climate being a great example of that, are we going to be able to make, do what you talk about? I hope you're right. I hope it's just a question of people learning from the experience. I worry that if the danger is years in the future, um, the attention span gets much shorter. To that end, I want to ask you, you know, you led to a large extent to Air as Human, uh, the 100,000 Lives campaign, a bunch of ways to put in place the kinds of things that we know actually work to prevent sepsis, hospital, ICU-acquired pneumonia, uh, pressure ulcers, medication problems, go down, down the list. Where do you see that progress? Have we stalled out? If so, how do we restart it? If not, how do we accelerate it? Where do you think we are in the uh, curve of uh, avoiding medical error? Well, I, I, to me, it's a larger part of avoiding medical error and seeking uh clinical excellence. Um, we've stalled um, 
pretty much. Um, I think there's a lot of lip service still, and in some particular areas, maybe central line infections and ventilator pneumonias, as you mentioned, uh, we, we've learned how to nearly eliminate these, and I think there is quite a bit of traction there. But overall, I'm I'm afraid that the the quality agenda has now fallen, if not off the list, far down on the list for executives, boards, and and clinical leaders. They are focused on a number of other important um, matters, uh, financial survival, of course, and changing payment systems, uh, but also um, equity is now a big a big deal and, and very much on the minds of healthcare leaders. Um, health, uh, workforce shortages and workforce burnout, probably the number one thing on the minds of uh, leaders today. Um, there's climate change you've mentioned, uh, dealing with new technologies. There's a whole list of, of things that executives and boards are focused on. And I, I used to be that patient safety and other dimensions of quality of care were, if not at the top, close to the top. I don't see that right now. I have friends and colleagues that disagree with me that think I'm wrong, but I, that's that's what I think is going on. And I think we need a reignition of the equality agenda in this country. Uh, it is the only route, in my view, to sustainability in the, in the longer run <clears throat> under any payment system. You've got to focus on making sure that every single nickel spent, every single erg of energy is devoted to meeting the needs of the people you're trying to serve. That's the nature of quality. And uh, as we talked about at the beginning of this interview, there's a lot of distractions from that today. So I am worried. Um, how to get it reignited? I don't know. IHI is trying. We have uh, recent evidence that the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, PCAST, has picked up the patient safety agenda. And I suspect that soon uh, President Biden will be receiving some guidance from his own science advisors about re-energizing the patient safety agenda uh, as a as a matter of national policy. I certainly hope so. For these Americans, uh, can you offer some hope for the future? Well, the, the, the workforce, the doctors and nurses you're seeing want to do the right thing. And uh, you're on the same side of the net as them they they really they really do want to do well they like you are trapped in a system which isn't functioning and uh, um, in the end i think that will to really help people is going to win whether it's going to win in the next five years or 20 years i don't know um, the unsustainability of the system right now contains the seeds of its own change uh, it is demonstrably not working and uh, sooner or later that that's going to come that's going to going to lead to change I think the you know there are technologies. Uh, healthcare can do more today than ever before for the diseases uh, that afflict us. We know far more about prevention, proper prevention, uh, and we 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 have uh, new technologies arriving, such as the artificial intelligence that that um, Robbie and I were talking about. So there there is promise at the at the cutting edge of healthcare today, as as always, uh, and that gives me some hope. Um, but we, we are in healthcare just one of the sectors who have been so far unable to recruit the political energy to do what needs to do. Climate and climate change and greenhouse gases is the other one that stares us in the face, but also the persistence of poverty in our nation, which affects us all. And uh, we, uh, we as a nation have not come to terms with our duties to each other in so many realms, and healthcare is only one of them.
One last question. Uh, I've pushed hard on you today because I know our listeners feel frustrated. They, as you say, recognize the problems. They want change to happen. They want government to function. They want the delivers of care to prioritize patient safety and affordability and some aspects, aspects of social determinants of health far more than they are today. What specifically would you like to tell them about making change happen over the next five years? Of course, it depends on who they are, Robbie, but uh, vote. 60,000 listeners are listening in right now. So it's a broad range of people who are listening in. And I'm going to say that 90% of them are frustrated by the healthcare system today. And it's certainly supported in the polls. So it's to all 60,000 people. What are you going to tell them? Well, whether you're a clinician or not, vote. This this is a political problem. And we need to elect leaders uh, at the state and federal level who will protect the interests of patients instead of the interests of the moneyed incumbents. Um, it, it is a battle. And uh, so know who you're voting for. Um, I think locally there are activities that can occur in your local community. I would, um, I would try to work with your hospital and uh, and make sure that the board of trustees uh, reflects the interests of the community at large, patients especially, and clinicians, uh, and not just the interests of of um, of money. Uh, if you're a clinician, I think you can be very powerful as a, a voice for the kinds of changes that Robbie that you've been arguing for and that I agree with. We need to move our payment system to one which pays for the care of populations, which supports investments in health and well-being, not just the repair shop, and which um, which uh, doesn't squander money. So uh, th those are changes in the business models that are out there, and I think you you need to be speaking up as a professional to. To, for that change, even frankly, sometimes to your own self uh, disadvantage economically in the short run, because you've got to stop being so acquisitive uh, in our system at all levels and start working on the interests of the public. Um, I think you need to speak out against greed. Um, I, I think we that's the one area where I think shorter term mobilization is possible. These, these payment schemes and games, although usually legal, are not moral. And uh, we need uh, clinicians to stand up and say, no, you can't behave that way. Speak that to overpaid executives, to pharma companies that are being too acquisitive, to hospitals that are just jacking prices up and saying, no, stop. Um, so, I mean, it, you can hear in my voice the uh, belief that we need to politicize the change now uh, because it's hurting everyone. Don, you're always an inspiration. I learned a tremendous amount from you. I appreciate your willingness to engage in conversation and debate today, and I can't wait to have you back onto the show. So thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Robin. Thanks for your leadership. My goodness, you said eight years of this show. That's wonderful. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthcarePodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.